when the first million hit the company bank account. I was sitting at home one night and we were pre-launch and I was thinking of all the different ways that the company wouldn't work, all the potential competitors, all the reasons why it was going to fail. And I spent about a half an hour seriously considering just wiring the million dollars back and not doing it. I am so thankful that there are founders who have the courage to share these kind of feelings. Probably most founders at one point have had this thought, but few have the courage to share it. I don't know that anyone's ever actually done that. Um, and fortunately, I didn't do that. But <laughs> when people think about like the, the self-doubt that goes through your head, I mean, even after the money hit the bank, you know, for the for the first part of our investment, I was like, I don't I don't know that this is going to work. And Ryan's raised over $200 million for Electric AI. They have 300 employees. It's one of the most successful tech companies. And he still had self-doubt. My question was, how did you move forward? Surrendering to the fact that like, hey, I can't change the fact that we're in a macroeconomic downturn. I can't change the fact that 10% of my customers might go out of business this year or otherwise be, be unable to pay. You know what I do control? I control how much money I spend. I control the products we release. I control how fast we move. I control how I communicate with my investors and my team. That was probably the biggest turning point for me in terms of my own sanity. It was like, you just stop worrying about the stuff that you can't control. Life gets a lot easier. Amen to that. Enjoy. I want to thank Corey Dolick for the referral. Check out GitHub and their incredible program. Boom. Welcome to Sit Down Startup Founder Podcast. We interview the best founders in the world and ask them what they did in the early days, right before that hockey stick growth moment. I'm your host, Adam O'Donnell, a former founder. I live here in San Francisco and I now work for Zendesk for Startups. Zendesk is a customer support platform and we offer six months free to qualified product-oriented startups. Quick partner shout out first, Acti Now. They can help you set up your Zendesk instance. Click the link below to get 40% off. Second, WorkNet GPT. They power support teams in Zendesk with bi-directional data integration to Slack. Ryan, super excited to have you on Sit Down Startup Founder Podcast. Everyone who's listening is to check out your background. We'll have the links in the show notes, but I want to just get right into it. First, tell us what Electric does, and then we'll go into some, some founding stories. Great. Yeah, happy to be here, and uh, thanks for having me. So, uh, the premise for Electric is, is really simple. Uh, we make it easy for small businesses to manage IT, and we specifically focus on companies that have IT budgets, meaning you're buying computers and you're buying software for, for your employees, uh, but you do not have an IT department or employ an IT professional in-house. And so before we came along and started building software and providing services to make this easy, your only alternative is to either do it yourself uh, which is not great, uh, or you know, work with uh, with a local IT consultant, which is sort of an old school kind of outdated way of doing it. So uh, along came Electric, and here we are. I love it. And how big are you in terms of um, how many employees and how much money have you raised? Uh, raised uh, a little over two hundred million, and uh, we have about three hundred employees. Amazing! And you've had some incredible investors like GGV, Bessemer, Bowery, and a lot of other ones. Been great, yeah. It uh, we have some awesome people on our cap table, and uh, now it's up to me to make sure we return many times the amount of money they put in. <laughs> no pressure. I I love it. Well, could you could you start with one of the lower moments that you had in the early days? Maybe even a time where you thought the company was going to go under. Yeah, I mean, I can think of a few. I mean, when when we raised the first, <clears throat> when I raised the two million dollars seed round. Uh, Bowery put in the first million, then I had to go find the other million. And so raised it pre-product. And when when the first million hit the company bank account, I was sitting at home one night and we were pre-launch. And I was thinking of all the different ways that the company wouldn't work, all the potential competitors, all the reasons why it was going to fail. And I spent about a half an hour seriously considering just wiring the million dollars back and not doing it. 
which I don't know that anyone's ever actually done that. Um, and fortunately, I didn't do that. But <laughs> I think when, when people think about like the the self-doubt that goes through your head, I mean, even after the money hit the bank, you know, for the for the first part of our investment, I was like, I don't I don't know that this is going to work. Um, so that was one that, that immediately comes to mind. And yeah, then there's another one I would say probably there was a time in between our series A and series B where, you know, I just had one of those days where so many things went wrong all at once that to me felt existential seismic, like this doesn't work at all. Um, to the point where I got like physically sick and extremely lightheaded. And, and I mean, literally my head felt like it was detaching from my body. There are probably two, when I think about it now in hindsight, there were, there were two days in the company's history where, yeah, like it literally made me physically sick. Um, and so, you know, I think um, now having been in enough of those situations, what I've realized is that, you know, usually when you think you're, you're totally screwed, you're, you're only really about like 40% screwed. So um, all those moments passed and then we ended up having, you know, some of our best days, weeks and months after that. So um, every, everything eventually is in the rear view mirror. Thank you so much for sharing that. I feel like as a new founder, you look at the highlights and all the money that's raised and you're like, oh my gosh, like they've never had it really that hard. Maybe you hear some light stories, but that's amazing. The first one that you said when like the money hit the bank account and you started focusing on all the reasons, like you got the first million, then you started focusing on all the reasons why it couldn't work. Uh, that's gotta be just like human nature to do that. And what what helped you kind of get out of that? I mean, I, I think that the, the biggest thing I looked at was, well, the worst that could happen is that is that the company fails. And I'd rather fail having tried than failed after just getting it this far and then literally not even starting. So that's 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 the thing I sort of remind myself of every day. I mean, granted, now there's there's hundreds of people's jobs on the line and the expectations of a lot of our customers, but ultimately as an entrepreneur, you have to go into it expecting that there's a very high likelihood that's not going to work and you just get comfortable with it. Like, am I going to be happy with how I spent my time five years from now, seven years from now, if the thing ultimately goes to zero? And if you're cool with that, everything else that happens, that's not that that's above that is going to be a bonus. Mm. Man, that's amazing. It It's almost like you're surrendering the outcome and you're like, hey, I'm going to do everything I can, but there are way, there are too many variables outside of my control. Yes, yeah, the thing is, is at the end, and that, that you hit on your last point, I mean, you hit on it perfectly, which is the only thing you should really be worried about are the things that you have control over. And, you know, if so when people talk about trusting the process, well, the process is having a maniacal focus on the stuff you control. The stuff you don't control is going to come at you whether you like it or not, you know, facing the facts and all. And I think like a huge source of most of my stress and anxiety as a founder across all three of my companies um, over the last 17 years was mostly the result of being worried about things that I had no control over. And so kind of like surrendering to the fact that like, hey, I can't change the fact that we're in a macroeconomic downturn. I can't change the fact that you know, 10% of my customers might go out of business this year or otherwise be, be unable to pay. You know what I do control? I control how much money I spend. I control the products we release. I control how fast we move. I control how I communicate with my investors and my team. And um, yeah, I think that was, that was probably the biggest turning point for me in terms of my own sanity. It was like, when you just stop worrying about the stuff that you can't control. Life gets a lot easier. Oh my gosh. You're just like, I'm just going to execute on these things. Is there any life hack that you have around staying focused 
on the things that you can control, maybe some cool, unique thing that you do in just your day-to-day work? Uh, yeah, I mean, when I wake up every morning, I, I, I sort of obsessively make these little lists and it's kind of like a weird form of journaling, but, but very ad hoc, but I'm essentially every morning thinking about the things that are the highest leverage, highest impact uses of my time or the company's time. And I'm reminding myself of that every single day, every morning so that I, I really make sure I have my head screwed on straight coming into the office and, you know, and I, and I kind of think through that narrative in my head of like, what is the story that, you know, I would tell internally and externally about how things are going right now. And you just kind of have to, you just kind of have to believe, believe what's happening and believe in what you're doing and, and, and let yourself be really motivated and inspired by that. Cause if you're not, then what are you even doing? You know? So I think starting my day by just doing that sort of little bit of a, of a, of a reset has been immensely helpful. And again, it seems really, really repetitive. I'm I'm often writing down the same things every day, but it it really helps clear my mind. That is very cool. I've been trying because, because you just get distracted with all the things that are trying to buy for your time. But if you come into the day, here are the things that I could, that if I focus on are going to move the needle the most. I've tried like a, just a silly uh, Google sheet where I have the actual, the, the list of things that I could do or strategies. And then I put like the importance or the impact that they have, like just one out of three. And then the amount of time that it would take me to to work on that strategy, like one out of three. And just as a way to kind of prioritize, like what are those highest impact, low hanging fruits? It sounds like similar. Well, because some of the highest impact things you're going to do might not actually be the most time consuming. And so like another, another trap that I used to fall into all the time is I would spend more time thinking about the way I was going to respond to an email or thinking about some important, but relatively short conversation I need to have than, than the actual time it's spent to just fire off the email or have the conversation you could spend, I would spend, I would drive myself crazy. And it's like, Oh, I, I really need to psych myself out about this work. And it's like, you know, you kind of move that front load the day with, with that stuff. I mean, whether or not you're a morning person, the reality is your, your mental acuity and your motivation is, is generally going to be the highest earlier on in the day before you've kind of depleted the gas. And so that's, that's always just, you know, tackle that stuff first and everything else will be a lot easier. So good. Well, Ryan, thanks for helping us get a, a light on <laughs> that. I, I wasn't planning on that, but I think that's going to be really be helpful for a lot of people. Definitely is for me. The Just shifting into, could you take us into a story or that that moment when you really had the highest conviction? You're like, there's something here, like right around that hockey stick moment of growth. The, 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 in the first moment, moment I realized that was we knew providing a, essentially an outsourced IT, you know, but, but tech enabled outsourced IT solution um, for, for SMBs. It was, it was clear that there was a big market there. It just needed to be approached differently. So it's the first of the three companies I've started where I was able to kind of go into it saying like, I don't have to worry too much about sort of fundamental product market fit because the problem I'm solving is, is fairly clearly defined. I'm just going about it in a more modern user-friendly way. Um, however, it's one thing to have an idea of that. It's another thing to actually get out of market and sign your first customer and actually, actually see it working. And so I would say the, one of the advantages I had of not being a technical person, I mean, I've probably written a handful of lines of code in my life, you know, decades ago, but um, because I didn't have the technical chops to go code up an MVP that would have taken, you know, probably three or six months to get out to market. 
instead what we did is basically stood up uh, a rudimentary little Slack app. It was just a user called Electric in our customer's Slack account. And then I just hired a guy named Julian from uh, from Best Buy, from Geek Squad, to be on the other end, getting getting the IT requests. And then we just had a Zendesk account <laughs> that we would put the tickets into. Uh, and then at the end of the week, we would export the Zendesk data into this like really beautifully designed PDF that was like this report, right? And so the product we were selling was this sort of automated real-time IT support with this modern interface and regular reporting and an IT scorecard and all that. But the reality is it was Slack, which everyone, anyone could, you know, go sign up for. It was Zendesk, which anyone can go sign up for. Um, and uh, Microsoft PowerPoint and, and Photoshop, which is what we used to make these PDF reports that looked like a product, but really were just, you know, PowerPoints exported as, as PDFs. Uh, yeah, and a guy that I hired from Best Buy. And so um, I think, yeah, the moment we knew that it worked was when I sort of pitched this modern IT solution and, and we signed our first customer and we framed the check. It was, it was, they're paying us a thousand bucks a month, which was like unreal. I'm like, that's a 12,000 ACV deal out of the gate. Like, let's go. And, um, you know, we did that. And I would say like a week into the first customer being live, we had this sort of this really scary moment where three or four days in, no one had submitted any tickets. None of the end users with this customer we signed up had submitted any tickets through Slack. And we were like, oh my God, like maybe people just don't don't want or need this. Then what we realized is we had never activated the user in Slack. They couldn't find it. They didn't see the electric user in, uh, in Slack. And so then we we activate it and literally 10 minutes later, the first ticket ever comes in, you know? And so we all run into the conference room. We huddle around the computer and we're like, well, what should we do now? And I'm like, well, we got to respond to it. <laughs> that is amazing, man. I love that, that moment of like what this is, there's no opportunity here. It's all falling apart. And then you said like, usually when you're in that moment, you're only 40% uh, in a bad situation is not as bad as you thought. <laughs> yeah. And it, and it was literally, it was like, Oh, like actually no one, no one, no, no one knows how to find us. So yeah. <laughs> that, that is amazing. Okay. So like incredible, just like no code solution starting out uh, Slack, Zendesk and PowerPoint. Um, how did you grow? What was your growth? Like the next 30 days after that moment in the conference room? Well, my, the, the lesson I'd learned I think always because I was always more of a, a sales focused founder, the product focused founder. And so what I realized in my previous two companies was that that I think a lot of founders underestimate is the the sheer volume of customer conversations that you need to have to ensure that even one paying customer falls out the other side is enormous. It's it, it would just if you've never really done sales or particularly early stage sales before it'll make your head hurt when you think about the number of emails and cold calls you have to make to get a single customer. It's thousands of emails, hundreds of calls and meetings, because in the early days of running a company, like I don't know how to sell my product and I'm the founder of the company, but even, even, you know, even you as a founder don't actually know how to sell it well. Right. Um, and so there's that learning curve of figuring out how to sell your own product, um, which really only exacerbates the issue of just how big of a funnel or, 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 or pipeline you need. So I think, getting electric off the ground, armed with the information of knowing, like, we're going to need to talk to a boatload of people just to get our first customers. Um, what that meant was that once we kind of cracked that initial product market fit code, the first deployment of our, of our offering with our first customer, we realized it was working. Most of our hunches were right. 
fortunately, guy I had working for me, um, he already had three or four more paying customers in the in the pipeline about ready to close. So we went from our first paying customer to four paying customers in the first 45 days. Um, and they were, in, in my view on this was that product market fit has a lot more to do with whether or not you're getting roughly the same type of customer to pay you generally the same amount to do roughly the same thing, right? Like I think too many people think of product market fit as a revenue milestone. Oh, am I doing a million in ARR? Am I doing 2 million ARR? That's directionally useful. However, depending on the, the size of customer you're going after, depending on the product that you're selling, you know, if you're an SMB player like us, you know, you could get pretty definitive product market fit at, you know, three, four, 500,000 in ARR, right? You know, we got to our first half a million in revenue with 40 customers. When you have 40 small businesses paying you generally the same thing to solve the same problem in the same way, and you were able to acquire those customers in a very repeatable manner, that's fairly definitive uh, product market fit. And that's sort of what, what, what we found. So we got to our first I think 60 or 70 customers in the first nine months, just running the same play over and over, selling the same thing at the same price. I've seen startups though, that go sign, you know, two or three really funky enterprise deals. And they're like, we're doing a million in ARR. Like, let's go raise a ton of money and hire a bunch of salespeople. And it's like, well, those three deals you signed are so radically different in terms of what the customer wants. They are priced completely differently. And there's no repeatable way for you to even go sign them up. Um, and I think that's actually what we're seeing now with a bunch of companies who raise too much money too quickly is, you know, you can sort of will something into existence, um, you know, and just because the revenue is there, though, doesn't mean it's it's repeatable. So fortunately, in our case, as an SMB play, you can't afford to do that. You It has to be, it has to become a machine very quickly. And so, um, you know, that's what fortunately we were able to do that in our first year in business in uh, 2017. That's That's amazing. The same thing just kind of filter like is this the same thing that we're selling because i had that challenge as a founder where they they seem like they're just shaking their head yes but and if they move forward to actually paying but they're coming to you for two different reasons and then the shift and then you're constantly torn to actually service that in the product and, and it it's like the worst thing for a company so you have to say no to one of them but you're saying the majority of them were all the same same thing like well you just brought up a good point saying no so i would say <laughs> after our first probably three or four months in market, when we had about a dozen paying customers really felt like things were working. We had a very large, very well-funded startup in New York. Uh, I, I will not name who they are, but they are now a publicly traded uh, business with thousands of employees uh, here in New York city. Their CTO approached us and he said, Hey, I need sort of X, Y, and Z from you to help me run my IT department better. And I'll pay you quarter of a million bucks a year to go do it. You know, we like fall out of our chairs, you know, because we're 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 grinding 12 hours a day over, you know, thousand dollar MRR deals. And this really well-known logo comes in and hey, we'll pay you a quarter million bucks. It was like, oh wow, like that's the business. We should go do that. But you know, we spent a couple of days talking about it as a team and we said, look, like the opportunity that we're going after is to solve IT for small businesses. And we've already gotten a pretty clear indication that we can do that. The worst thing we can do is go cut a 250K enterprise deal because that's not the business. There are a hundred other companies who can go solve that problem for them. They happen to come to us because they want to experiment with, you know, with a startup. But like, 
that's not the business. That's going to drag us into a highly competitive market where there's a ton of other solutions. And so it was a, I think it was a tough call initially to 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 turn the money down. But in hindsight, I mean, who knows what would have happened to our company? I mean, it would have been it would have represented 80% of our revenue and probably 80% of our time spent to go build something that ultimately wouldn't have been a competitive solution in the market. That self-realization or just reflection and saying like, we're not able to compete in that because it's easy as a founder to be like, no, we got this, like ignore everyone else. We're special. But you're like, no, we we can't win very easily. There's a hundred other competitors. If we go up there, stay where we are. Which is tough because, you know, I mean, that that early traction, that early validation, there's, you know, I've been guilty of this um, in all my companies, but yeah, as a founder, when you're kind of fighting for survival, it's you can justify pretty much anything, <laughs> right? And that's a really dangerous position to be. So you kind of have to be able to check yourself on a regular basis, and you know, to to avoid that because you can make anything make sense in your head if you wanted to. <laughs> that's that's so good. Well, we're right at time. Last question: what What would you consider is your superpower as a founder? Easiest one is is really just awareness. How are things actually going? I think for the most part, at the end of the day, like my success as a business, your success as a business for any you know founder listening to this, it's it's all going to come down to a mix of art and science of actually understanding what does the customer really want? Like what they're saying and what they want to need are, are, are two very different things. The employees that you're trying to hire, the employees that, that, you're, that you're trying to retain, how you actually motivate them and, and are they really engaged? Like that's also, you know, a mix of art, mix of science. And so again, as a sort of a non-technical person, like the only thing I can really fall back on is, 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 is my instincts. And so I think constantly just sort of checking myself in real time and, and asking some really hard questions, keeping everyone honest. I think it's enabled us as a, as an organization to, to learn and grow and evolve pretty rapidly over the last six years. That's amazing, Ryan. This is an incredible story. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. If you want to learn more about Zendesk for startups, check out our website, zendesk.com slash startups. Also, we're always looking to improve. So don't hesitate to email me with any feedback on how we can ask better questions, guess the target, or anything else that we can do to better help you as a founder. My email is adam.odonnell at zendesk.com.